Good morning, church. And so we come to the end of our series of Leviticus. Uh, Twelve lessons in, uh, three months worth of studies, and today we finish it. So for the last time, let's open our Bibles to Leviticus. Hopefully not the last. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 26 is where we'll be basing our class today. So you find yourself in this situation. You've been studying this Middle Bronze Age book of law for three months and you're thinking to yourself, now I've got all of these things that I've learnt. I've learnt about burnt offerings and grain offerings and I've learnt about how priests are ordained and I've learnt about what foods are clean and what foods are unclean. I've learnt about this Day of Atonement. I've figured out the, the laws of everyday holiness, how I'm to, when I bring in my harvest, I'm to leave the edges of the field and such things like that. What do I do with all of this now? Where do I take this knowledge? You know, is this just, have we been studying Leviticus for three months so that we can all say, we know Leviticus now? And, uh, and so that when our friends ask, you know, do you know any Middle Bronze Age law books, you can show them up with your knowledge of Leviticus? I think uh, it's safe to say that we probably want to take something more away from Leviticus than just some academic knowledge, than just knowing a few more feasts and festivals and knowing a few more ceremonies um, that don't apply to us today. And so that's what today is about. This is what our final lesson is, is about because that's what Leviticus closes with. It says, don't just learn all of these laws for the sake of learning laws. There's no point in, in memorizing the laws of God if that's where it's going to stay. If you are going to um, study these, these large sections of Scripture and, and know the Hebrew and know the background and know the ancient cultures and how they all integrate together to, to form these stories, this is pointless if our knowledge stops here. And Leviticus says, if you've got this far through the book, if you've gotten to the end, Make sure it doesn't just stay that way. Make sure it doesn't just stay as academic knowledge. So remember why we started this study in the first place. It's because of that wall there. It's because of right at the top, our goal of growing our connections to God. Leviticus is all about growing in your connection with God. So in the last three months, have you grown closer to God? Do you feel like the things that we've studied in Leviticus have helped you to appreciate God and helped you to understand that you want to live in proximity to him have have the things that we've studied in leviticus helped you to understand the holiness of god and understand how rigorous an exercise it is for sinful disobedient humans to try and enter into the presence of someone so holy and mighty and awesome i certainly hope that the last three months you know it might not have changed your life it, you might not have done something radical to, to change in your Christian walk. But I certainly hope that, that spiritually you're feeling like, because I, I kind of get what's going on in Leviticus, it's helping me to grow closer to God. It's helping me to uh, reaffirm my relationship with him and to, to um, reinvigorate that bond that I have. Or perhaps you're in a state of spiritual stagnation. That's the alternative, isn't it? That you're going through this class in Leviticus, but really this isn't, this isn't affecting the heart. This is maybe helping you to understand a few things in the mind, but it's not changing your heart or your mind or your soul. So I want to put this question to you this morning. 
how is Leviticus helping you? And is Leviticus actually going to make an impact on your life going forward? Or is it going to just stay as a book that you studied for three months one time and now remains unopened in your Bible? James 4 and verse 17, he says, If anyone knows to do good and fails to do it, to him it is sin. When we study, we have an obligation to apply these things. The more lessons you sit through, the more sermons you hear, the more times you hear what the right thing is to do, that means James 4.17 applies there. If you know what the right thing is to do in these circumstances, it becomes sin for us to know the right thing and to fail to practice it. All right, so at the end of this lesson, we're going to sing song 948. That's I Am Resolved. And I'm going to ask you to make some kind of resolution in your mind about what we've been studying through Leviticus. Um, Also, we're going to offer this as an invitation song. So if you need to make a resolution about maybe becoming a Christian or if you want to resolve in yourself to, um, to restart your relationship with God, to get back on a good page with God and to, to really try to, um, to put more energy and effort into your spiritual life. That's an opportunity to do so. And I'll just tell you that now so that you can think about that through this lesson. And if you do have a resolution to make at the end, um, we'll invite everyone to, to make a, a resolution. Um, you can do that privately in your own mind or you can do that um, before us all. We, we don't mind. We'll offer that at the end. So, and next week, by the way, um, we'll be getting into our series on peace. So remember to get those flyers out. Remember to tell your friends that we'll be studying peace through all of November. So Leviticus 26. Who likes getting warnings? Who likes getting warned about things? Warnings aren't all that fun, are they? If you get a warning light come on in your car, it's not a a cause for celebration. You usually roll your eyes and go, another thing to get fixed, another thing that I have to do. Or if your boss comes to you and warns you that your job position might be in jeopardy. It's not a pleasant warning to receive, is it? That doesn't make your day. What if the police pulls you over and gives you a warning? It doesn't fill your heart with joy. It doesn't give you strength to carry on. Um, If you're a kid and your parents come to you and warn you that if you continue in your misbehavior, you'll be facing a timeout. It's not a pleasant exercise whatsoever. But warnings, even though they can be unpleasant, are necessary because the alternative to receiving a warning is to not receive a warning and to receive the consequences of those actions. Instead of the warning light coming on on your dashboard, your car will break. Instead of your parents warning you about the timeout, um, they'll get even more annoyed and then perhaps the consequences will be more severe. Warnings are better than consequences and that's why Leviticus ends with warnings. It's not because everyone loves to receive them, but because God pleads with you, he knows that the warning light is better than the car breaking down. He knows that giving you the warning now means that those consequences might be avoided. And he loves us enough to give us those warnings. So I'll love you enough to give you these warnings as well. Leviticus 26 is broken down into three parts. The chapter is all about looking at the future and applying the book of Leviticus. And the first part is, in verses 1 through 13, it's the blessings that will come if you keep the covenant. If you will look at what's written in Leviticus, and and of course these feasts and these festivals and these sacrifices don't apply to us in a literal sense today, but of course the principles still apply. 
Leviticus is, is saying if you adhere to these things, if you actually practice these things, then good news. You've got blessings coming for you. And then it goes on to the alternative in verses 14 through 39. This is the real warning light flashing here. The curses for disobeying the covenant. And then finally it finishes with hope after disobedience in verses 40 through 46. So that's going to be our lesson this morning. We're going to go through these three sections. Let's start with the blessings for keeping the covenant. Do you know you were created to be blessed by God? That's why God made you. He made you so that you could be blessed and so that you could be a blessing. Look with me back at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This is the the origin of man and the, the purpose of man in verses 27 and 28 of Genesis 1. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first thing that God does with man after he creates man is what? He blesses them. That's what God wants to do. That's why God created man in the first place. Not to curse man, not to punish man, not to um, speak curses and evil upon man, but to bless us. He does it right from the beginning and, and continues on. Look with me in First Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. And verses 8 and 9. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, all reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. The, the application is very simple. You are called to bless people so that God can bless you. That's what this whole world is about. We live as a blessing to other people, and God therefore blesses us in our lives. It's pretty simple, isn't it? That's basically the story of the Bible. That's how it's meant to be. And of course, this is what we're called to. We're called to inherit a blessing. And if you inherit something, it means you belong to a family. And Peter says, you belong to God's family. And therefore, your inheritance that you receive for belonging to this wonderful family of God is the blessings that God will give you. The reason that we're blessed by God is why? It's because God dwells with us. As it was right back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden when God walked with man and blessed them. Similarly, Leviticus tells us that if God is with us, we will be blessed. Look back at Leviticus 26 with me and we'll read verses 11 and 12. Leviticus 26 and verse 11 and 12. It says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. This is at the end of talking about all the blessings. It says, I'm going to bless you in all these ways because I'm there with you. I'm walking among you. Satan wants to deceive us into thinking that blessings are over here and God is over there, and you can choose one or the other. 
And that's why James cries to us in James chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. And he says, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't let Satan convince you that blessings and God are separated, that they're two different things in different categories. He says, don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift, every blessing that you receive comes down from where? Comes down from the Father who is above, the source of all blessings. So in your life, there's going to be opportunities where Satan is going to try and convince us that blessings are this way and God is that way. And we have to choose between happiness and God. And James says, don't be deceived. Don't let Satan fool you. He did the same with Eve. Eve was deceived into thinking that she could be blessed without God. When Eve uh, comes to realize what she's done, what, what is the thing that she says? She says, I was deceived. I was fooled. And God says, don't be fooled. You've got plenty of examples. You've got plenty of evidence to show you otherwise. God and blessings go hand in hand. And if you choose to live with God, you will have the blessings that God brings you. Uh, C.S. Lewis had that famous quote, um, God can't give us happiness and peace apart from himself. There is no such thing. It does not exist. It's true, isn't it? God can't give us happiness. He can't give us peace away from him or apart from him because those things belong to him. And when we live with God, we live with the blessings, the happiness, the peace, the meaning that comes from being in fellowship with God. And that's why Jesus, when he starts his Sermon on the Mount, what, what does he start it with? Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the blessed way of life, the people who have the true blessings of God, and those are the people who walk with God. So that's easy, right? You were created to be blessed. You were called to inherit a blessing. This is going to be fine because you'll just walk with God and he'll continue to be with you and you'll be blessed and happy for the rest of your life. But, of course, that's not what happens. In the second part of this chapter, in verses 14 through 39, these are the curses, the curses for disobeying the covenant. Now, the curses are essentially a reversal of the blessings. If you're blessed, you'll have good crops. If you're cursed then you'll have crops that will fail. If you're blessed, you'll have good health and you, you won't have the sickness and the illness. Um, but if you are cursed, then you will have these things happen to you. Instead of success in battle, you'll have failure. Instead of um, healthy crops, you'll have pestilence, etc., etc. The cursings of God are essentially just a withdrawal of his presence and therefore a withdrawal of the blessings of God. And it's the same. If we leave God out of our lives, he is not there to continue his blessings to us. Really, the center of this passage is found in verse 19, in Leviticus 26, verse 19. It says, And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth uh, for, like bronze. The NIV reads, I will break down your stubborn pride. This is what we do when we leave God behind. We have the pride of our power. We have stubborn pride that leads us. The reason we leave God and depart from him is because we listen to pride. Because we listen to a voice in our heads that tells us we don't need God. We don't need to do things his way. We can do things our own way and experience the blessings of 
a life created for ourselves. And God says, I will bring these things upon you so that I can break your pride, so that you can repent. Uh, a preacher once said that repentance is about, it's like driving down a highway and then having to realise that you need to be going in exactly the opposite direction. And the off-ramp to that highway is brokenness. It's for God to break your pride. He has to break your pride so you can get off that road so that you can make the U-turn and start coming in the other direction. And it's the same with the Israelites as it is today. When you leave God, what your need is at that time is for your pride to be broken down so that you can recognise your dependence on God so that you can turn back to him. What does pride come before? The fall, doesn't it? Proverbs 16, 19, uh, 18, pride comes before a fall. So God sends his prophets and he sends the prophets to them when they disobey for this exact reason, to try and break down their pride, to try and say, you can't survive without God. You can't find the blessings of this life without God in your life. And the prophets are there to try and wake the people up. Turn over to Jeremiah 9 with me. Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah speaks to the people after they have gone into disobedience. And he reminds them of this and tries to correct them on their pride. Jeremiah 9 verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you have pride in your wisdom, if you have pride in your might, if you have pride in your riches, the Bible pleads with you to break that pride, to be broken down. And I sometimes wonder this in my own life. Um, sometimes when I, um, I go through challenging times, I wonder, is this, is this God trying to break my pride and remind me of what's most important? Is this God blessing me with trials, blessing me with, with maybe even failures, maybe even um, things that I didn't see going that way so that I can question which direction I'm heading in, so that I can break my pride and remember to turn back and do things God's way. Perhaps you're going through a period of time in your life where God is hoping to break your pride so that you'll turn back to him and that you'll experience his blessings. Turn over to Jeremiah 13. A couple of pages over. Jeremiah 13, verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. God spoiled their pride. He brought them to destruction to kill their pride so that they could turn back to him. And maybe God will do the same in our lives when we turn away from him. Maybe we will experience hardships and pain to remind us, to refine our faith, to point us back in the direction of God. But it doesn't stop there. And so we get to part three, hope after disobedience. And this is in verses 40 through 46. God being infinitely wise, 
God's knowing what will happen in the future. He understands that this disobedience will happen. He understands that they won't keep Leviticus. They won't keep these laws. They won't keep the feasts. They will turn away to other gods. They will hurt their neighbor instead of helping them. They will forget to do good and justice and mercy and righteousness. And so not only does he say these bad things will happen, but he says when these bad things happen, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to remember. Let's actually read these verses together. Leviticus 26, verses 40 to 46. It says, But if they confess their iniquity and, their, and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, what's humility the opposite of? Pride. And they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land, uh, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. This is really important for us as Christians. Just as God anticipated Israel's disobedience, he anticipates our disobedience as well. He anticipates the fact that even after we become Christians and even after we are enlightened with a knowledge of the truth, we are still going to fall short. And that's why 1 John chapter 1 has the remedy for Christians who are trying to live right but still have sin in their life. It says you need to confess that sin and God is faithful to forgive that sin and to remove all of the iniquity from our life. And God doesn't stand there in anger, angry that we left him. He stands there in compassion. He stands there like the, the prodigal son's father, waiting with a compassionate disposition waiting for the wayward son to return so that he can bless the son once more. God's not a one-chance God. He gives you infinite chances in this life to turn back to him, to break your pride down, to humbly come before him and remember that he is the source of all good things in your life. In fact, and here's the remarkable thing, God knows this from the beginning. He knows how much you'll hurt him. He knows how much you will choose the world over him. He knows that, that you will succumb to sin. He knows that Israel is going to succumb to some horrible, awful iniquity. And he knows that at the start. And he doesn't say, well, I can see that coming, so I won't go there. You know, in the book of Hosea, Hosea presents God as a husband and he presents Israel as the wife. 
And he uses this illustration that Israel was unfaithful, that Israel essentially committed adultery. What Leviticus is saying here is really important. Leviticus is saying God knew right from the wedding day that he was going to marry an unfaithful spouse. He stood there with Israel and he performed his vows. He went through with the wedding service knowing full well that she, Israel, would be unfaithful. And still, he married her. He loved her. He knew that she would cause him heartbreak. She knew that, uh, he knew that she would cause him pain of this unfaithfulness. And yet, he went through with it. It's a mighty love, isn't it? I don't know anyone who's ever gotten married to someone knowing full well that they're going to commit adultery, knowing full well that they're going to be unfaithful and they're going to hurt you and rip your soul apart and still go through with it and saying, I will still unconditionally love you. But God still chose it. It's not poor God because the Israelites happened to um, disobey and he never saw that coming. It's how awesome is our God that he saw all of that coming and still loved them. And when you became a Christian, he saw all of your unfaithfulness in the future. He saw all of the, the problems that you would cause and he still loves you. And he still has compassion to us. So, that's chapter 26. Let's summarize not just chapter 26, but Leviticus. What's Leviticus all about? Leviticus is about the way of holiness. And holiness allows God into your life. And so the question, if you have not paid attention for the last three months, just pay attention to this slide. This is all I want you to know. The question is, do you want to live life with God or not? If you don't, that's fine. You don't have to choose it. But just recognize God is the source of blessings. God is the source of all spiritual blessings, but not only that, the physical blessings that we have too. Recognize that your life is going to be richer in every way with God in it. Recognize that without God, without his presence, you lose all of those blessings and you're deceived into thinking that the world can give you the blessings that it just can't. This is the point of Leviticus. God does not want to be a distant creator. He doesn't want to live up there in heaven and rule with an iron fist. He wants to live in your life. He wants to walk with you day by day. He wants every decision of yours to be made with him in mind. He wants to be there at your, dinner, at your dinner table. He wants to be there in the lounge room. He wants to be there when you wake up and when you go to sleep. He wants to be with you all of your life. And Leviticus is about saying, invite God into your life. Ask him to live with you day by day and you will be blessed. So... Are you going to walk with God or not? And I said at the start we're going to offer an invitation and that's what we'll do now. If you're not walking with God today, don't leave this building without at least seriously considering whether you should be walking with God. Or if you've stopped walking with God, if you have become a Christian but you've wandered away from that path or you've wandered away from some of your earlier convictions, don't walk out the door before first stopping and thinking, do I need God in my life more than he currently is? 
Do I need to make some changes in my life to make sure that God isn't just this distant figure in the sky, but that he actually walks with me each and every day? And if you want to start your walk with God, that's a really good choice to make, and we encourage you to make that choice. You need to die to your life without God in the waters of baptism. You need to be raised to walk in a new way of life. Acts 22 verse 16 talks about washing away your sins. And when you wash away your sins, you become clean and holy so that God can live with you. If you haven't made that decision, by all means, think about that today and make sure that you talk to someone about that. If you are walking with God, but perhaps you've done an Israel, perhaps you've gone and done the same thing that so many others before you have done, walked with God for some time but then walked away from him, stopped prioritising God in your life, maybe you're in that position right now. And that's okay because God is there, like the father of the prodigal son with open arms, with compassion, waiting for you to come home. And he invites you to do that. If you need our prayers to help you do that, we are here to pray for you and here to help you in making that decision. And let us boldly say, all of us, having finished the book of Leviticus, say, as David says at the conclusion of the 23rd Psalm, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 